1 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoring, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, come to your word with sobriety and reverence because we know that your word is so precious and priceless and eternal. It will outlive the heavens and the earth, as the Lord Jesus said. And you use your word to fashion us, to make us more like your son. So many beautiful things you do through your word. And we are your disciples, and we want to grow as such, not supremely for our benefit, but for yours and for the benefit of others that you have uh, placed around us to serve. But we know also you're working to further conform us into the image of your son, Jesus, and you do that in part through your word. So we pray now that you would set this time aside, a special time, a holy time, us just communing with you and sitting at your feet and learning from your word. We pray that you'd accomplish every amazing purpose that you have uniquely for each one of us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in everything we do as a result of what you're going to instruct us with regarding this passage. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
As we saw last week, we saw how Paul uh, first came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey there. We read that account in Acts chapter 17. So if you missed last week, you can uh, write in your margin in, the, in, right in this section or at the beginning of the, the book of 1 Thessalonians, Acts chapter 17. Because that's when the Apostle Paul came uh, to Thessalonica from Philippi there. And you remember he was with Silas and Timothy. He had been persecuted uh, in Philippi. And he, tra- he traveled about 100 miles uh, to Thessalonica. And he came to them and reasoned with them for three Sabbaths from the scriptures. And some Jews believe, a multitude of Gentiles believe, we're told, and also not a few prominent women. So it was a great harvest, a lot of fruit. And so Paul was there, but then there was persecution, and these Jews were upset. They caused a stir, and Paul had to leave, and the team had to leave. They came to Berea, and they ministered there. There was fruit there. And then those that were, the unbelieving Jews that were in Thessalonica followed them to Berea and caused problems there to where Paul had to leave, and Timothy and Silas stayed behind to help those that were in uh, Berea. Paul went to Athens, and then later Silas and Timothy caught up with him in Athens, and then Paul dispatched them, uh, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to help this brand new church, and then Silas likely to Philippi, uh, because he's mentioned to the uh, church of Philippi there when Paul writes to to them. So, Here Paul is, he's coming to this city, and then he has to leave right away, and then he ends up in Corinth after Athens, and that's when Silas and Timothy rejoin him. And Timothy gives him a great report of what's going on in Thessalonica. Paul notes that, and he's encouraged because he's wondering, how are they doing? I didn't get to spend hardly any time with them. Remember, three Sabbaths, that was about it, that Paul got to spend with them. So he was quick to send Timothy back, Timothy went there for an unknown amount of time. We don't know how long, probably just a few weeks, maybe at the most a couple months. Then joined back with with Paul there in Corinth and gave a great report. And so Paul wants to encourage them. He wants to impart to them a lot of instructions and, and help them and so forth. So it's been a great introduction of us just kind of seeing how Paul started the church and so forth. Last week we saw him, uh, you know, talk about the great things that God was doing in their midst. He talked about in verse 3, he said, we remember your work of faith, labor, and love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God the Father. So it's very important to Paul to encourage them. He desperately wanted to be able to do that in person, but he was, he was hindered. He couldn't do it. Uh, And so here he is given this instruction, but he's saying, I want you to to be encouraged because God, I recognize, and more importantly, God recognizes how you're coming along. And I asked you to remember what it was like for you, those of you that know the Lord, what it was like for you to to be a new Christian three weeks old in the Lord or a couple months uh, old in the Lord, a brand new baby in Christ there, and to remember what it was like. And I remember just, just couldn't believe what had happened to me. I just still was, was just amazed and in shock. And I just had this joy and this peace, and I had to tell people about what was going on in my life. And God was making aware of me aware of so many things that needed to change, and I was just overwhelmed by his presence and his word and reading things for the first time. You ever talk to a new believer and say, I want you to read the Gospel of John, and you're thinking in your mind, I wish I could read the Gospel of John again for the first time. You know, and they're doing that. And the church in Thessalonia, 
they couldn't read the gospel. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have any leaders, uh, at least in a sense of seasoned leaders, discipled leaders, and so forth. So Paul knows they're very, very vulnerable. But he also knows that they're inspired and, in, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I should say, you know, indwelt, that's what I originally meant. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit and overseen, their faith was being overseen by the Holy Spirit. So they're at a great disadvantage from, from a lot of us when we came to know the Lord. We had a full Bible. We had a church, most likely, to be a part of. We had people that were caring for us and reaching out to us and all of that. They didn't have any of that. Paul knows how vulnerable they are. He, sent, he sends Timothy back to help, and Timothy comes back with this great report. No doubt, and I can just say from the heart of a pastor, that was a blessing to Paul, to hear how they were progressing and hear how their reputation, as we saw last week in chapter 1, had gone out into the whole region so that Paul said, I don't even have to say anything about how you're progressing in your faith. Everybody knows already. I'd be telling them old news if I mentioned to them how you were growing and how you were progressing. And that must have been a huge, huge encouragement. Because he also said in verse 7, as we saw, that they were examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. And he continued in verse 8, for you, the word of God is set from you, the word of God has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. And so this fruit was just abounding from them. And we just... We just look at that and go, how is that possible? How could Paul have, have even thought that was even a possibility because he wasn't there to help them, wasn't there to nurture them? The church of Corinth, he was there for a year and a half, and he still had major issues with their growth and wrote two letters to them. The first one was very, very difficult for them to hear. And he had spent all that time, the Ephesians, he spent basically three years with them, invested in served and gave and taught and imparted and all these things bore great fruit. Here he is with the Thessalonians for about three weeks and that was it and sent Timothy back for a short time. But God had done so much. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in a new believer's life. Later Paul's going to say, God himself has shown you to love one another. He's directly told you that. Paul knows that, he's, that God would be directly telling his new believers to love one another. That shouldn't be something any pastor has to say for the first time for someone to hear. Usually, the God himself, by his spirit, reveals that right away. He reveals his heart to his people. And so, beautiful thing that Paul is going over. And he's going to continue uh, today. But Paul's going to deal with, a little bit, have a little, deal with the same type of encouragement from a little bit different of an angle. Because he's going to kind of go review what it was like when he first came to them and when the team and Silas and Timothy with him first came and how he was among them and so forth. Why does he do that? It's very likely that they're being discredited and slandered at this time. That these Jews were coming in, uh, either false teachers that were claiming to be Christians or unbelieving Jews that were criticizing him and the team. And so he's defending himself likely here. But it also is not just that, but also to encourage them in the legitimacy of who they were because it's directly linked to the legitimacy of who the, the church in Thessalonica are. Because you can't separate the two. If Paul's illegitimate, their faith's illegitimate. But since Paul's faith is legitimate based on how he was among them, that means their faith is legitimate and backs up the encouragement that he's already given them in chapter one. So he begins in verse 1. Notice he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now I can just hear this slanderous speech that these Thessalonians may be hearing. 
You know, nothing was accomplished when Paul and the team were here. Nothing was really accomplished. They got kicked out. What did they really do among you? Or hearing something like, Paul didn't have a chance to fleece you. He was all about selfish ambition. He was all about seeking his own, and he's going to defend that. Uh, But he didn't have a chance to really take advantage of you. God moved him out of the way so he couldn't fleece you. He couldn't take advantage of you. All these accusations. But, But notice he says, but you yourselves know. Paul says, you yourselves know. I don't have to tell you. You could remember just as well as I can. You don't need any, you know, uh, ginkgo biloba <laughs> to help your memory. Uh, I'm sure they had ginkgo biloba back then. You know, every good and perfect gift from above. If you believe that ginkgo biloba is good and perfect, it was likely there. But they didn't need to have that. They could just remember and think back. And he says, you yourselves know, brethren, that we didn't come to you in vain. In other words, everything that God did through us is evident in your life because you are on the receiving end of that. And because God worked in your life, because he made you a new creation, because you're already bearing fruit, it demonstrates to you that we're legitimate and that that should be an encouragement to you. It's important for us to know that nothing that we do for the Lord is in vain. We oftentimes think of how limited our ministry is. We think of how potentially insignificant what we do for the Lord is in our own minds. But in reality, it's not insignificant at all. Did you know that you can get the same reward in heaven as Billy Graham? It's true. We all could get the same reward as Billy Graham because Billy Graham's reward in heaven is not going to be based on the volume of ministry. It's not going to be based on numbers or influence. It's going to be based on his faithfulness. It's going to be based on what God had called him to do and if he was obedient to that. And what's cool is that every one of us can, can have that same reward if we're faithful to what God's called us to do. And of course, it doesn't look the same, and it shouldn't. And, and it's beautiful that it doesn't. Even at our agape feast, when we all bring different meals, it represents the diversity of the body of Christ, just in what we eat. Some of us have no preferences. That's obvious. For, you know, look at, you know, it's like we can eat anything. And some of us are real picky, you know, but some of us like all different flavors. Some of us are very narrow. We like bland things. You know, we'll just have the same exact simple thing over and over again. But the body of Christ represented by our gifts and our different callings is a beautiful trophy of his grace and expression of of his creativity. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And that word workmanship means his work of art, his poem. It's poema in the Greek and it's beautiful. So he says our work wasn't in vain because what we did actually uh, accomplish something. But even if Paul didn't see any outward great fruit like he, like he did in, in Thessalonica and he was more like Corinth where he didn't see a whole lot of, you know, a great massive, you know, pro, uh, you know uh, progression of, of, of fruit being born, born through, through, that, through that church, it, Paul was still being faithful. I think of Jeremiah prophesying for 40 years. Not one recorded convert. Was he successful or not? Would he be put in a church growth book today? Probably not. Would he be the definition of, you know, successful ministry? Not in all the literature I get in the mail. (laughs) No way. But Jeremiah was faithful because he was obedient to what God called him to do. There was a voice. God was represented to the the nation of Israel there to say, you need to repent. You need to repent and turn. And And God knew the whole time no one would repent, that he would have no real visible fruit. But he was successful because he did what God called him to do. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told of all these wonderful saints that were in the hall of faith, as we like to say. But at the end of that chapter, in verse 39, it says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. That's interesting. Because he's saying they didn't obtain what, they, what, what the earthly inheritance or whatever. Or they didn't obtain what, what was put before them. They were living on God's promises, not explanations. Have you heard of that phrase? We live on promises, not explanations. And so he says at the end of that chapter there that they were not to be made perfect or complete apart from us because they were the, the great cloud of witnesses about which the author is going to speak in the next chapter. They're the ones that live the example for us that we should learn in, in, by, by being faithful even when we don't understand what's happening in our lives. So he, the writer is saying there that, that they are made complete. Their ministry was made complete in the fulfillment of their faithfulness being worked out in our lives. So they didn't even see the promise, but they were fruitful far beyond their lives. And we don't know what God's going to do apart from our, our lives and our days. He's going to continue our ministries, and we, don't, we need to be encouraged in that. So it's never in vain whatsoever. God uses us in spite of ourselves, and he multiplies what little we do for him, and, he, and then he rewards us for it on top of all that, if you can believe it. Now, I want you to know in verses 2 through 6, Paul's going to remind them of what, how they weren't among them. He's going to remind them, this is, how we this is what we weren't doing uh, there. And he's, then, then he's going to get into, after that, in verse 7 and beyond, for a little ways, he's going to get into what they were. And I want to draw some ministry lessons from these verses of how not to be and how to be from the following all the way almost to the end of the, our verses today. And we're going to go a little bit slower in the beginning and then pick it up towards the end. And he says in verse 2, Not even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. It would have been very easy for Paul and the team to come in to, to, to uh, Thessalonica after being beaten with rods, put in stocks, and put in prison. It would have been very easy for them to be soft selling or soft peddling or whatever the word is, uh, you know, softening the gospel or not being as bold and, and being timid. It would have been very easy. All of us can attest to, to that. None of us have been in stocks. None of us have been beaten with rods probably. And so here they are being faithful. And he's saying an imposter who is self-seeking, who doesn't have the right motives, who's not legitimate, would never have done that. And so the first ministry lesson is that ministry can occur in the context of difficulty and persecution. Because if, a lot of times when we're in ministry and things go wrong or we're serving in the context of difficulty, we could be tempted to think, what in the world is happening? I must be out of the will of God. But that's not true. Paul wasn't out of the will of God. And he demonstrated his true character and was true to the message that God had called him to preach, even in the context of great difficulty. Someone that's engaged in covetousness and self-seeking and all about them, uh, they would never do that. They would be, they would be gone. Uh, but he knows that these false teachers that were coming through the, 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 all the churches, they were, they were seeing people as a means to an end. There's so much mail that I get that people want access to you because they see you as a means to an end. And I, I'm not saying they're non-noble things that people want, but they want access. And we can't ever have, you know, business opportunities or anything going on to where it, this has to be a very safe place to where you don't see sense that someone is hitting you up for something, that you're the means to an end. You're not. 
And, and so God wants to continue working in our lives and among our lives in a way to where we're not sensing that someone's trying to get something out of us. Now notice he says that we were bold in our God. They were bold. That re- to preach the gospel in the context of persecution, you have to be bold. You may remember in Acts when they were afraid, they were threatened, and, and they asked for boldness. And God refilled them with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke with boldness the word of God. They were all of a sudden in the temple preaching again the gospel, even in the context of persecution. So he says, we're legitimate. We preached in conflict, and so that's a great lesson for all of us. By the way, all of us are in the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that he equips the saints for the work of the ministry, the work of ministry there. And so we're all in ministry. God has called each one of us to serve in some capacity the body of Christ. And so we can't be like Christ unless we're serving in some way because Christ (laughs) said, I didn't come to serve. I mean, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And so because a lot of times we can see all these ministry lessons, like, oh, that's the leaders, you know, that's the whatever. No, that doesn't, no, we're all called to serve the body of Christ in some capacity, and he calls all of us to be legitimate in our character, and he uses the character more than we realize. Ever wonder why, and we'll get to this when we get to Timothy and Titus, the qualifications for an overseer are all character-based, except one, which is a, a gift, which is a gift of teaching. They're all character-based. He doesn't even mention education. But what, what, what's out there is the requirement. You've got to go to, to cemetery. I mean seminary. And, and uh, you have to, you know, have all, and education's great, and I'm not saying God doesn't use seminary. Okay, so don't misunderstand me. But the point is that premium that God puts on preparation and what needs to be there for every man, but he wants it verified for overseers, is that they have character. They have godly character. And that's what God used in the lives of these Thessalonians. Now, verse 3 tells us, For our exhortation did not come from error, or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So he's still using the word nod and nor. He's still focusing on what they weren't. And the second lesson in ministry is that we, that ministry, effective ministry, needs to flow from truth, holiness, and honesty. And he gives the opposite of each one of those there, if you notice in verse 3. He says error. He doesn't come in, in, in with error, because you have to know what you're talking about. Again, we have to all study to show ourselves approved. But he didn't come with teaching false doctrine. He came teaching the truth there. Now, Thessal- the Thessalonians, he, he, they, he, they are complimented by receiving the word that he preached as, as coming from God. But he also says to, in, in Acts chapter 17, in the, the, the Bereans, that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. So they're, they're uh, complimented from Paul, to, that they received the word of God, they were receptive to God's word. It would have been better if they would have checked the prophecies that Paul was saying related to Jesus being the Messiah. So that's a lesson for us. So it was good that they received it as God's word, but it would have been even better if they would have received it uh, checking and, and making sure what the, the person said was true. That's what I hope you're doing right now. That's why I say the word notice. That's why I say look with me. That's why I say the verse number. On, that's all on purpose. I do that because I want your eyes to go down. I want you to see what I'm seeing. I have no justification to say what I'm saying apart from God's word. And that's a protection for me. Because I'm not going to say, you know, notice in verse whatever what, I'm not, what, what the Bible doesn't say and try to teach it. I'm not going to do that. I have to say, look at it for yourself. And that way you learn where it is. That's why I'm not a big multimedia, you know, PowerPoint guy. I don't think it's wrong. But I want you to get to know that book. 
I remember as a new Christian, I remember I could see in my mind where those scriptures were. I know what column it is. I and I want you to be familiar with the Bible. You know, so often today they have, they don't have pulpits. They have just someone walking around. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But I want the focus to be the Bible, not me. And I know God uses the vessel. And I know that he uses nonverbal communication. He uses all that. But I want the focus to be what's in your lap, not me. And I want to point you to what uh, you can see for yourself to verify that what I'm saying is the word of God. And so that's why, that's why we do those things. So he says, not an error nor uncleanness there. It means holiness. How discredited have, have people been? And, and, and we don't have to look too far. We can look at our own lives in terms of our message when our lives don't line up. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware. Leaven is yeast, and yeast spreads. Yeast affects others, and yeast corrupts. It doesn't make anything last very long, but it makes it taste great. And it's a picture of the flesh. It's a picture of sin and so forth. So he says, we didn't come in uncleanness and, and, and unholiness or lack of holiness, nor did we come in deceit. And that word in the Greek means to, to bait on a hook. And that's actually what deceit is, isn't it? When you're fishing, and I know we have a great fisherman here, and he's our worship leader. At least we hear the stories and everything, and so that's the perception. You know, no, he, I'm sure he's a great fisherman. But he puts bait on that hook. At least I hope he does. Uh, he puts bait on that hook, and what's that do? It deceives the fish. The fish think it's actually something that's, that's not going to bring forth death in their life. That's deception. That's what Paul's saying here. We didn't come with deceit. We didn't come one way looking like we're something that we weren't, and then when it's too late, then come in and then gotcha with the hook, and then profit from it, just like the fisherman profits from the fish, and, and until he has to, you know, throw it back because all the, you know, overregulation. But we won't go there. Um, so that's, he says, I didn't come like that. So our ministries need to represent truth, need to represent honesty, no exaggerating numbers, you know, the Modesto Manifesto has been made famous by Billy Graham in his autobiography. That they prayed and they sought the Lord and they're not going to, they came back after being away individually and the Lord said, don't exaggerate numbers. Don't speak evangelistically, as it's been said. And don't ever be alone with a woman and all these things that was related to character. And God's honored that in Billy Graham's life and his ministry hasn't been perfect, but he's honored that character all the way through. Verse 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So the third ministry lesson is effective ministry needs to be motivated by pleasing God and not man. Because you could actually insert there in verse 4, not as pleasing man, but pleasing God who tests our heart. That's the, that's the inference there. So we're saying everything that we do is about pleasing God. And there are things that God will call us to. In the, in, the, in the context of a legitimate calling that we'll never do for any man or woman. We'll only do for him. Do you think Paul's going to go out and get beaten to get all, all this that he... He's only on a second missionary journey right here. He still has another missionary journey. He still has another trip to Jerusalem. He still has another two-year incarceration in Caesarea and then a, then a boat ride to, uh, to you know, a, a hurricane. <laughs> And then Malta, and then all the way to Rome, and imprisonment, two imprisonments, and then finally, as his history records, beheading. So he hasn't even gotten close to the fulfillment of what he's going to experience, but do you think he's going to do any of that for some man? No. And so we have to be having God at the center of why we do what we do. We can't be concerned about what man thinks. You know, he wrote in 
uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he said, For do I now persuade men or, do, or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. A being a God-pleaser and a man-pleaser are mutually exclusive. You will not be fruitful in ministry very long if you are concerned about the approval of man one way or the other. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. That's a, be- that's a beautiful uh, uh, expression of wisdom to us. Jesus told us also in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Jesus didn't say, I, don't, I highly you know, recommend that you don't do it, or it would be you know, not advantageous for you if all men speak well of you. He says, woe, woe to you if all men, and the key word is all. Because some men will speak well of us. They'll appreciate our ministry and so forth. That's great as long as we give glory to God. But when all men speak well of us, that's dangerous. Because if, if that happens, that means that sinful men are speaking well of us and are impressed with us, which means we're compromising God's calling on our lives. And so much of us, they, we want the approval of the world, but yet we want to be fruitful for God. And we, we can't be fruitful for either one. If you're concerned about the approval of man, you're going to not be very effective in the, in the approval of God related to your ministry and vice versa. So he says that wasn't what we were about. Very important for us to see that. We can't change the way we minister because we want to impress people and we can't change the way we minister because we're going to be concerned that someone's not going to think highly of us. That's a big test for leaders. It takes true agape love to say the hard thing to someone when they, we know they're not, they don't want to hear it. And I've done that many, many times. I dread it every time. It doesn't get easier. I don't, it's one of the things I hate that it's part of my portion. But it's not just for me. It's for all of us because we're told in Scripture to exhort one another daily. As someone has said, that's one of the most disobeyed Scriptures in the New Testament because we don't do that. We don't do it weekly probably or monthly or yearly <laughs> this decade. Well, last leap year, I, maybe I did it. But we don't exhort. And exhort is encouragement. It's telling someone that you can do it. It's, re- it's, it's rooting them on. But it's also pointing out that there's a deficiency there. Oh, but I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't want to offend anybody. God's called us to speak the truth in love. Appropriately, yes. But he still called us to speak it. So it's very important for us to see that. So he says there in verse 5, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. The fourth ministry lesson is effective ministry doesn't use flattery or by any means do things for financial gain. That's, that's just a principle. <laughs> you know, you look at all these things, Jesus epitomized all these things, of course. But Jesus didn't work his ministry uh, with flattery. Jesus didn't flatter people in the sense that you're, you're kind of saying things to kind of get the right response out of them, or he didn't try to fleece people or try to get financial gain whatsoever, and neither should we. Don't you love it when someone's trying to butter you up? Trying to, you know, sometimes with kids, you, you, you can get the sense that there's something coming after this statement. There's something following this. There's, there's a, a, a hand coming out that's parallel with the ground, you know, for money or something. Or someone says, yeah, I really noticed that you're this. Yeah. And it's beyond encouragement. It's flattery. And God doesn't use that. He doesn't need it. He doesn't use it. And Paul says, that's not what we were about. We weren't about flattering words, nor a cloak. And then they wore cloaks. And cloaks covered up the, in, the inside garments there. 
We weren't deceptive and covered up a, a, our, what our true motives were with a cloak so that we could hide what we were really about to get something from you, to see you as a means to an end so we could fulfill our covetous heart's desire. That wasn't us. We got the wrong guy. So in any of our ministries, flattery, saying things to get people to do what we want them to do, or doing something to get something from them, uh, that should never happen in, in, our, in, in God's people there. Now notice he gets to the potential self-seeking motivation, verse 6. He says, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So the fifth ministry lesson. God's ministry, what we do in effective ministry, doesn't seek glory from men. Now, Jesus warned about how men love to be called rabbi, and love to be called teacher, and love to sit in the seat of Moses, which was a real seat in the synagogue that they called the seat of Moses, a place of authority. Men love the titles. Men love places of authority. They love to be, called, you know, be important, and that's one of the dangerous things about uh, uh, some leaders, and it's in all of us, not just leaders, not just some leaders, it's the risk is in all of us, is that we want to be seen and we want to have some great need met in our life by serving in some capacity. That should never be our motivation for why we serve. To, and, and because of our man-centered uh, culture and because that's crept into the church, and it's a, so many man-centered teachings and all these things that have great motivations behind them, I'm sure, but that's just not what Scripture emphasizes. That because of that, we can even think of serving and worship in the context of what we get out of it. And God knows we'll be blessed by serving. He knows that. And he's okay with that. He's fine with that. It's not like we should feel guilty for being blessed by serving. It's not what I'm talking about. The point is, is that we serve because we want to obey what God has called us to do. And we want to bring glory to him. And so... Paul says, we didn't seek glory from men, not from you or others or anyone else, and we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We could have made demands for you to look at us a certain way. I, I'm convinced that Paul didn't demand anyone to call him apostle. I'm, 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 I'm positive <laughs> that he never said, hey, whoa, 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 you need to call me apostle. You'll never, you'll never hear me correct you and saying, not calling me pastor. I'll never, if you ask me what I prefer, I'll just say Pat, I don't care. I refer to myself as that because that's what you refer to me. Uh, that's how you refer to me. And so I, sometimes I have to say, Pat, I'm like, who are you on the phone? You know, it's like, Pastor Pat. Oh, okay. I, I, you know, that's the only reason why. I don't care about that title. No f healthy leader just really loves that and just, oh, yeah, call what else, what else you know, can you call me? And how else can you respect me? And none of, none of that. They want to deflect it uh, to the Lord very quickly because they know themselves really well. The fifth ministry lesson here is, or I, or I should say the sixth ministry lesson is that effective ministry flows from a nurturing heart. Notice he says in verse 7 through 9, he says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Now, verses 7 through 9, sometimes verse 9 is talked about in the context of a man, uh, you know, um, he's saying like we're, we were like a, a father working hard and providing. And he's going to get into fathers and what they bring into. But I, 
I believe what he's, he's comparing himself to still to the mother there in verse 9. I believe he's saying, because all, doesn't this, look at this, verses 7 through 9, he uses the word gentle, he uses cherishes, he uses the word affectionately longing, imparting our own lives, laboring day and night. Is that not a picture of motherhood? Can I get an amen from the women, the, the moms around here? And the men, really, that's actually more important that we hear the amen from the, from the, from the uh, husbands and, and fathers here. I don't believe verse 9 is talking about him comparing himself to a father yet. That's coming. I think he's saying this is the mother. This is a perfect picture. Whenever you see a mother with a newborn, and, and they're just holding that newborn, and they're gentle. Everything about what they're doing and saying is gentleness. And they're cherishing and caring and all of that. It's beautiful. Anytime we think of the Apostle Paul as this rough, rugged guy who's just, you know, not gentle, I mean, that's a completely different picture of what the reality was. He cared for them deeply. And I think in verse 8 when he says, a longing for you, this is before he'd even met them, I believe, because he was longing for them, and he says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. He knew that they were of next, that God was leading him that direction. He was wanting to preach the gospel to him. He knew that they were lost. God doesn't, God doesn't look at, uh, categorizes people by cities and so forth. I mean, he, he, lost people are lost people. Saved people are saved people. Paul knew, I'm going into Thessalonica. I'm going to preach the gospel to people that God loves and Jesus died for there. And he says, we imparted the gospel of God when we came to you. We had that love from the beginning. It wasn't like it, it only happened after he was there, but he said, we didn't just impart to you the gospel of God, and true love will impart the gospel of God. If we don't, and God's leading us to do that in someone's life, we can't say we really love them. And sometimes we're more concerned about what they think of us and their rejection of us and all of that, myself included, than we are true love and saying they need to hear how to be rescued because they're on their way uh, to hell. They could die at any moment. That should be important for us. And he says that's an expression of uh, our love for you. But he says, remember, brethren, our labor and toil. We labored night and day. We worked with our hands. Paul uh, made tents. He was a tent maker. And he worked so he wouldn't be a burden. He could have made demands. He could have said, I'm an apostle. He says elsewhere that those that labor and teaching and so forth and doctrine, they, they should have double honor. And the context is financial there. So uh, he's saying we could have done that, but I wanted to lead by example. I wanted to be above reproach. I wanted to be above any accusation. That they're, and they still made it. They still made these accusations against them, even though he did all of that. Now, can you imagine if he would have done that? how much more the, the, the uh, accusations would have been. So he said, we don't want to be a burden of you to you. We preach the gospel of God. So ministry flows from a nurturing heart. And nurture, that when you describe someone that's nurturing, they're attentive to details. They're soft, they're gentle, they're caring. They know the right approach. They knew the right word to say. They take the time to think ahead. All these things describe love, don't they? 1 Corinthians 13 describes attention to detail related to a, a, a life that's, that's giving to somebody else. It's very, very specific things. So Paul is saying that's how we were. That proves that we're legitimate, and thus it is encouragement to you because it shows that you're legitimate. So it's beautiful. Paul, Paul wasn't the only one, obviously, that expressed this. The, all the disciples expressed this, except Judas, of course. He expressed self-love. But the, the disciples demonstrated this over and over again. But who did they learn it from? Jesus. Jesus was caring. He was nurturing. He, I, I still love to read when he prepared them breakfast after he rose from the dead. Here they are 
most likely kind of getting distracted and, you know, putting off their calling and so forth, following Peter into his fishing expedition when probably God was not wanting to be focusing that, you know, having them focus on that at the moment. And he's cooking them breakfast. You know, he's caring for them. He's nurturing them. And then his, his, his heart that, dis- that has the same type of description is expressed in Matthew 23, 37, when he said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks upon her wings, but you were not willing. Not that you couldn't, but you weren't willing. You had the choice, but you denied the choice. And he's saying, I wanted as a, I mean, talk about a description of, of femininity in terms of, you know, wanting to be like a mother, like a mother hen. That's a beautiful uh, picture there. He says, but you weren't willing. Love extended and love rejected is one of the most painful ways that we can express uh, what Jesus went through in his public ministry regarding his own people rejecting him. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. And so sometimes we think in the, uh, all this care and concern and loving people in our evangelism and loving people in serving and so forth, we think, I've been hurt, Pastor. I've been hurt. I've been hurt in my experience. It, is it really worth it? It's worth it. God says it's worth it. It was worth it for him. He doesn't say, you know, you get about 20 times where you get hurt, and then after that you don't have to do it anymore because you've earned the right to reject loving people. No. Keep loving keep loving. One of the ways we can become most like Christ is when people reject us and hurt us. And sometimes it's so hard for us because they're people that should know better. But wasn't it the case with the Jews? They should know better. They had all these prophecies. God had painted this beautiful messianic portrait in the Old Testament. All these prophecies so that when he came, they wouldn't miss him. And they rejected him. And not because they couldn't, because they wouldn't. But think about our own lives, how we have sinned and fallen short. Did we know better? Were those things volitional? Were those things on purpose? Yes, we sin, we do things on purpose. We know it's going to hurt them. We do it anyway so often. Not always, but we, there's plenty of it. But we do it on purpose. And he says, and he's still caring for us and, and nurturing to us. So that card we send in the mail, that, the brief word of encouragement, the random phone call that comes out of nowhere expressing our appreciation to someone, the bag of groceries at the doorstep, the gift card in the mail, the meeting someone on Sunday and saying, I really appreciate your faithfulness, the, I really appreciate your gift. All these little things that we think are insignificant are huge. The collective uh, kind of total of all those things, the sum total, is just a beautiful picture of Christ in our midst, him living his life through us. We just started the school discipleship yesterday. It's a wonderful time. I love it. Didn't like the spiritual warfare leading up to it, but I love the class and I love what God's doing there and so forth. But we talked about what a disciple is. A disciple is, is someone that's regenerated, someone that knows Christ, that does what Jesus does and says what Jesus says because of what Jesus has given. That's a disciple. And, but part of what Jesus does is give sacrificially and has attention to detail related to loving people and says loving things and isn't self-consumed. So God's going to keep bringing us back to that over and over again because our sinful nature is, is so in love with itself. And so Jesus said, if you want to come after me, let your, let, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. I wish you would have said weekly there or monthly or yearly. It's painful to do that daily, but I need it daily. I don't know about you. I mean, is anyone 
the same as me? I hope so. Give me some encouragement here because I feel like I'm the only one sometimes that has to deal with this stuff every day, but I know I'm not alone. I have a sense that uh, you're the same as me. You're part of the same fallen gene pool. Verse 10, you are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, not some, no favoritism, every one of you, as a father, here we go with the father, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The seventh ministry lesson for effective ministry involves telling people what they need to hear. And usually in a family, a lot of times, that falls into the role of the father as a disciplinarian. The picture is encouragement. The picture is, you know, exhortation and charging. You know, that word charge there in verse 11, uh, it, means to, it means to tell someone something that they may not want to hear. <laughs> but you're, 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 you're calling them to something there. It means to command or insist. That's what fathers do that are doing their job. They command, they insist on, on the standard there, but doing it in an appropriate way. So Paul doesn't say we were just nurturing, we were just gentle, that's all we were, and that's an expression of love. No, it wasn't just that. It was also we provided that discipline, we provided that encouragement, the words that, that, we're, that we are supposed to speak. We spoke those words to you there. And what did we say? Verse 12, that you walk worthy of God who calls you into his king, own kingdom and glory. To walk worthy, that's the word that they would use when they would weigh something out. They had the scales there, and when you would put on a proportional weight that would make something come even, that was the same word that they used to, to describe to walk worthy. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying our lives should be a response, in that, that, that type of response should be commensurate with the, all that God has already blessed us with. We talk about this all the time because it's the foundation of Christianity. God's the initiator, I'm the responder. Legalism says I'm the initiator, God's the responder. So we, should, we don't live our lives and do what we do for God and love God and worship God to get him to love us more or accept us more or to earn a standing with God or any of those things. We already have that. The Apostle John says we love him because he first loved us. We respond to what he's already done. We could never outgive what he's already done and we could never get him to love us less or more than he already loves us less or more. He's, he's, the, he's loving us at the most he could possibly love us, and he can't change. So that brings us a, a huge, brings a huge encouragement. So he says, as a father, what did I do during those three weeks? Like a father, I told you what you needed to hear, and I, and I, and I told you to walk worthy of what you've received. You're newly saved. You're new Christians. You're three weeks old in the Lord. Now walk worthy. I can't give you a Bible. I can't give you a permanent leader. I can't be here and, as I just would give my right arm to be here among you, to help you. I can't do any of those things. But I know the Holy Spirit's going to work in your life. And so he's going to show you and he's going to teach you directly. And the Lord's going to work in your life. Maybe bring, uh, you know, revelation of scripture with copies coming forth your way in the future. We don't know. But he said, walk worthy of that calling. And I know that there was crash courses going on during those three weeks. Crash course Christian Foundation class. Timothy came part two, part three, part four, part five. They're going for hours and hours and being exhausted. Just, okay, I got to get all this in. I don't know if I'm ever going to come back. I don't know how many, many missionary journeys we have. They didn't know that there was three. There could have been 20 in their mind. They have, they have no idea. They're probably hoping there wasn't 20. <laughs> Please let this be the last one. Come, Lord Jesus. And so they're, they're saying... 
we, we just want to pour everything that we can into you, and we told you what you need to hear, and you've responded well. That's why you have a, a reputation already that you're growing exponentially. We don't even have to say anything. So Paul's going, they have the Spirit, they're elected, they're chosen, they're Christians, God's progressing them, and I, I'm incredibly encouraged here, but there's some more things they need to know. So he says, verse 13, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. And, and not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So they're receptive. What would have been better is that they would have tested what Paul said by the scriptures, just like the Bereans did, but they still are commended. They welcomed it, which means to take to heart. They use two words that are similar. He uses two words here. He says that, that you received it at, in verse 13. That means just to accept it. But then he says you welcomed it. Totally different word. It means to open up your heart to it and, and, and give it all the attention that uh, it's worthy of. Isaiah wrote, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. We're told that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We're told that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and is powerful for all these amazing things in our lives. We're told that, that, that uh, the word of God will never pass away. It, we're told it's sharper than it, and it'll divide between bone and marrow and judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here, Paul is saying that this, this, this word of God, notice he says, it also effectively, present tense, works in you who believe. It wasn't just the gospel he's talking about. He's saying the word of God that you were given, whatever form it's in, even if it's just what we shared with you, it's working in you. It effectively works in you, present tense, those who believe. And you can say that too. You can say that it has effectively worked in you who believe. I can say it, and that's why you're here. That's why uh, you're wanting to learn and wanting to grow, and that's why you have your devotions, and that's why you make that a priority, because it's very, very important. That's why Paul could say, without ceasing, I thank God that this is true in your life. So he's just saying it's more encouragement for you. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So they're already experiencing persecution. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So he's commending them. He's saying, and he's encouraging them. You've, per, you've persevered. You're not receiving persecution any different than, than those that are in other places. And you have stood the test. You have stayed faithful. You've stayed committed to that word and to your faith and to your Lord, even in, even with, in the context of all this persecution. And, and he says, I want to give you some perspective. Those persecutors are going to uh, receive God's wrath. They are going to re reap their their false uh, uh, behavior or their behavior that's been hurtful. It's not going to go unpunished. I want to give you God's perspective from this. From their perspective, it could seem like this is going to go on forever and there's going to be no reprieve. But he says, no, that's not going to happen. You're going to, they're going to have uh, repayment for what they're doing. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. He's saying, expressing his heart even more, we wanted to be there, we wanted to come, but we couldn't. 
Satan hindered us. Now, Satan has to go through God's sovereignty to do anything. You remember Job. He had to get permission from God to mess with Job and to hurt Job. So he is on a leash there. And God uses all things to work together for good, even what the enemy plans for us. He, he takes advantage of those things for our sanctification and to make us more like Christ. And so he's saying the only reason why we haven't come again is because we've been hindered. I want you to know our heart. But he says something so encouraging to them. For what is our hope our jo- or joy or crown and rejoicing? Is it not even you that in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? Seeing you're going to be with Christ. And when that happens on that day, we are going to be rejoicing. And we know that that is going to be an incredible day. And we were a part of that. And because of that, you're our uh, joy. And you're our reward in, in that crown. And you're our hope. And you're our uh, everything that you're bringing us so much joy. And that must have been so encouraging to them. Even, th- you know, three weeks to two months old in the Lord. Whatever, however long it was. That they, were, that they were meant so much to Paul. And that he wanted to come to him, but he was hindered. And he's saying, all this persecution that you're experiencing, the same type that your brothers and sisters in other places are experiencing, these false teachers, or these persecutors rather, are going to be held accountable for it. But it's not going to go on forever. You're going to be with Christ someday. You're going to be with him at his coming. And I love this last verse. For you are our glory and joy. Beautiful absolutely beautiful. You are our glory and our joy. You're what blesses our hearts. You're at the forefront of our mind. We pray for you without ceasing. He's already told him that. You are, are a blessing to us. And he's just expressing his heart just like a parent would. How many of us that have kids hold back on telling our kids how much we love them and how much we care? He's already been describing that type of relationship with them. And he's saying the same thing any parent would to their kids. You're, our, you're my joy. My son just had his ninth birthday uh, party yesterday. It's an absolute joy of mine just to see him be blessed. And, and so he's just saying, I, I, I love you. I care about you. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're, and, and God is using you. You are, God is multiplying you. And he is using you to bring the gospel to others. And you're going to have the same opportunity to have others be a joy to you, just like you're a joy to me. So beautiful passage. Of course, it's not going to end. We're going to continue in chapter 3 next week. Remember, our ministries have to be done, and we have to be a certain way in the context of our calling. We can't just be mechanical and go through the motions. We have to be men and women of character. It matters to God. It spoils it for God when we do the right thing with the wrong heart or with out of a heart that is, is not uh, doing it out of worship to him or, or our lives are, represent willful disobedience. Our ministries are tainted in his, in his sight. How many times have we seen him say, in God's sight, in the sight of our God, and our God and our Savior? He sees it all. We have to be men and women of integrity. What do we do when no one's looking? That's a, the best test of who we really are. But the, the fallacy is that no one's looking. God's looking. And he sees that. And no, we're not perfect. And not, us not being able to be perfect should not be a cop-out for not growing in our walk and getting closer to the Lord and having his life be lived through our lives. So it's a great encouragement for us. We can't take shortcuts. Character is important. And the extent to which we allow him to work on our character is the extent to which he will use us for his glory. Let's pray together. 
Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for all that's here. Where We know we're not worthy of, of all that you've said to us, Lord. We know that we don't deserve this type of uh, um, nourishment. We're not worthy of the calling, Lord, in our own flesh. Help us to live the life that you called these Thessalonians to. We're aware, Lord, that Satan hindered Paul, but we know, Lord, that you had the final say because he was led to write this letter as a result of it and the next letter. And, all, and your people throughout two millennia almost have been blessed. So we thank you, Lord, that even though we're not ignorant of Satan's devices and he doesn't have, we know, Lord, that he's, he's not, doesn't have the final say even when we think that he has won a battle. We know he's not winning the war in our lives. And we thank you that you're greater than all of what he brings against us. We thank you that you are greater in us than he that is in the world. So we thank you for this time. Use it in our lives for Christ-likeness so that we can be more like your son and bless your heart. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.